This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News, Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. The Prime Minister. I'm not sure where this is going to go today, uh, but I'm also not sure he expected this. He's not calling for a ceasefire. He uh, asked Israel to show something called maximum restraint yesterday. I'm going to let you hear the clip. And then you can tell me via text what you think of the clip. Is what he's saying fair? Do you agree with what he ends up saying? He was in Maple Ridge, British Columbia. And I don't know if this was the planned comment. You can never tell. Because I thought Justin Trudeau had seven or eight good minutes last week. He kind of strode down the stairs, was about to go into the House of Commons chambers. But he did stop and talk to various media for seven or eight minutes. And I thought he was emphatic. And I thought... There's the guy. That's the guy that can convince Canada to vote for him. That's the guy that can win three elections. That's also the guy that the liberals said, save us, please. We're we're drowning here in uh, mediocrity, A, with how our leaders are being picked, and B, with relevancy on the national scene. I thought that's the Justin Trudeau that sometimes has his moments. I did not think yesterday was that moment. In fact, it may have been his worst moment, to be perfectly honest, and I'll explain why of the time since October 7th happened. Here's what he said yesterday in British Columbia about Israel. I have been clear that the price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Even wars have rules. All innocent life is equal in worth, Israeli and Palestinian. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint because the world is watching. So I don't know what maximum restraint is. I wish somebody had been able to get in a question. I know it would take courage even to interrupt the prime minister because that's just not the protocol. Define maximum restraint. That's all I wanted to know uh, yesterday around dinner time when I saw the clip. Define what that is. Give me some dues. Give me some don'ts. If someone said to me or you during your job, hey, here's a phrase and I want you to follow it. And you didn't understand the phrase, you'd ask. There's a famous Saturday Night Live sketch. It goes way back to 1984. And uh, when Julia Louis-Dreyfus, right? Elaine from Seinfeld and uh, the phenomenal Veep show, brilliant comedian. She's on the show, but she plays a character that's an employee at a nuclear reactor. And the boss leaves for the day and he says, just remember... You can't put too much water in a nuclear reactor. You can't put too much water in a nuclear reactor. And she's thinking, does he mean you can't have enough or you shouldn't put too much in? When you leave things open-ended like that, it gets confusing. And here's Israel in the heart of the battle right now, knowing the world is watching. And I've told you, I've got, if you told me I'd be in this position uh, seven weeks ago, talking about Israel as much as A, we have, and B, Uh, defending their right to defend itself and see not seeing too many things that they're doing that they can't afford not to do. I'd have been shocked because I got tremendous criticism with some of their foreign policy decisions and some of their aggression, but I don't know what they are supposed to do. I don't know what maximum restraint is. And Justin Trudeau never defined it yesterday. And it just, I feel like if somebody had followed up and asked him that, It would have turned into this word salad that wouldn't have had. I don't think he kind of knows what those two words mean when they're slammed together right like that. Maximum means a lot. Restraint means very little. 
What are we asking here? And I would make the point as well on a day when the Al-Shifa hospital is under siege by Israeli forces. Many other countries in the world have pointed out the balancing act and there is an onus on Israel. There, of course, is an onus on Israel. But there's an onus there that you must take into humanitarian considerations. The United States, the European Union have made it extremely clear that Israel's claim that Hamas is using civilians as human shields at that site is just the most obvious thing in the world. I mean, you can take somebody seriously in an argument or a discussion or a debate when they say, yep, they do that, but there's still an, an onus on Israel. There's still a responsibility. Hamas is going to do what they're going to do. We played you. We dug out a clip from Bill Clinton yesterday. I didn't hear it a ton of other places in uh, in Toronto or across Canada, but I saw it being used in the UK and I saw it on a couple. Uh, where did I see it? Um, uh, News Nation in the United States, which we don't get on cable. And I thought that's incredible. There's Bill Clinton pointing out Hamas uses civilians as human shields, hospitals, schools. They're happy to do that. Palestinians are just pawns on a chessboard to them. They don't care. For Trudeau not even to recognize that, I thought showed incredibly poor judgment. And I'm thinking he's thinking that he's getting away with the comments. And then Benjamin Netanyahu comes for him. And absolutely, feel what you feel about Benjamin Netanyahu. But it's also one of those scenarios where when he blasts Trudeau in a tweet, it tells you, hey, at least we're being paid attention to. But Israel doesn't think much of our leader's political acumen or his opinion because it's a it's a slap down. It's dad saying, go to your room. There's no other way to describe it, regardless of how you view, view this particular conflict. I want to play you this because uh, Bernie Sanders is a well-known U.S. politician. He's run for president a couple times older. Mm-hmm. That's just seems to be how they like him in the United States. But he in a moment in a Senate hearing yesterday at a Senate help committee You'll hear the comments of Mark Wayne Mullen, who's an Oklahoma senator, a Republican, and you'll hear the comments of a labor leader named Sean O'Brien. His Twitter handle, by the way, is Teamster SOB. You you can't do better than that. And you'll hear Mullen read the words of O'Brien back to him. And then Mullen, right next to Bernie Sanders, gets on his feet and basically says, time for a throwdown. And then you'll hear Bernie Sanders jump in. We could use a moment like that in uh, in the House of Commons or in Queens Park later today because it's ra- it's it's talk radio gold when it happens. Imagine what they're doing with this in the states right now. Here's the exchange. What a clown! Fraud always has been, always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time. This is a place. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Actively. Oh, okay. okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Shem- it. Hold it. If hold we can't, no, I have the mic. Said. I'm sorry. This is hold what it. he said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? Oh, no, you can't. This is a hearing. <laughs> 82 years old, Bernie Sanders. Do you think he rolled out of bed? And I don't, I'm not 82, so I don't know how that roll goes. But I don't know whether Bernie Sanders then says at that particular point in time, 
Um, I feel like I'm going to be breaking up fights. I haven't done this. He's probably got like 11 grandchildren and six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, and has to do this on a regular basis. He did it with an elected senator and Teamster SOB. Again, I, it's hard to, you'd almost be rooting him for him in the scrap just because of the Twitter handle. You almost would. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We had awful news, obviously, in the last couple days, uh, finding out about Vivian Silver. Um, This brilliant person did more in a month uh, to confront world peace, to step up for women worldwide as well than most of us could ever hope to do. And we found out two days ago that she had indeed been murdered in what seemed like the initial Hamas attacks. A gentleman joins us now who knew her, knew her well. Um, and we wish him uh, all our very best in this time of, of grief. But I'm sure it's been it's been considerable grief and uh, anxiety over the last six weeks. He's John Linden, executive director of the Alliance for Middle East Peace. Thanks for picking our show to come on to this morning, John. I really appreciate you doing so. Thank you for covering the story. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm, I'm very sorry uh, for the news. How did you um, know Vivian? When did you first meet her? Um, I first met Vivian in 2012, maybe, uh, and then began working with her much more closely from 2014 onwards when she um, she reacted to the, uh, the devastating Gaza-Israel war in 2014 by founding Women Wage Peace, uh, an all-met member that is now the biggest peace movement in Israel. But um, Vivian's relationship with the organization I run, All-Met, the Alliance for Middle East Peace, goes back to our very earliest days where she was one of the architects that brought it together and allowed it to now become the largest network of peace builders in the Middle East. She was she was one of a kind. Some of how others described her, John, is um, soft-spoken at times, but especially because she wanted peace so badly, outspoken at other times. I mean, being very critical of, of shall I say it, both sides here for, for, how would I put it, just not being able to get it together. That, that, that irked her and irritated her, didn't it? It did. I mean, she was a multitude of different people rolled into one, a, a pretty formidable package. Um, <laughs> she was able to uh, provide a forensic political and human rights analysis to what went on. She was on the board of Beth Salem for a while, which was the leading human rights organization in in Israel, but she was also deeply humane and humanist in her analysis. Really, her, her life's work was bringing people together, Israelis and Palestinians, going beyond politics and really focusing on that human dimension. And um, particularly, I think, the relationship with the Gaza Strip. I mean, her living in Kibbutzberry, um, which is right on the Gaza border. She had so many friends in, in Gaza. Before Gaza's closure, she would visit very often. She assisted um, me and, and some friends in, in, in securing the release of a, of a Palestinian friend whom Hamas imprisoned in the Gaza Strip for, for holding a Zoom call with Israelis. I mean, she had this analysis that was better than almost anybody else's, but it was never an abstraction. She walked the walk. She worked every day with Israelis and Palestinians to build the sort of peace that she knew was not only possible, but the only way both peoples would be secure. And it seems like somebody that, you know, when we all say, uh, John, you, me, our listeners say, this, this conflict exhausts me. Uh, I, I worry about the strain it puts on um, our families, our friends. You, you almost should think about somebody like Vivian because she just, she never stopped. She never stopped moving left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, moving forward, no matter how emotionally or physically exhausted she was trying to strive for peace in, in a difficult region to find it. No, you're exactly right. It's funny. I mean, funny is perhaps the wrong word at this time, but um, we've been asking ourselves, what would Vivian do, right? Mm-hmm. Never deterred. She always kept working. And, you know, our team, our community are, are devastated this week. We've been devastated for five weeks, but it felt like this week we were reliving October 7th again. Yeah. Um, and um, we know that at the darkest moments, she was, you know, one of those people that was really driving forward, refusing 
to be defeated. Um, and it wasn't blind naivety or optimism. I want really to make sure your listeners understand this. There are some people who just believe in an abstract way in peace and are kind of just sunny side up people. Vivian knew more than everyone else in every room that she ever walked into, the bad as well as the good. But she just had this confidence, this determination, it was a steeliness. And um, we need more of that in our space. And I think Vivian's legacy will be the number of Israelis and Palestinians that she inspired and mentored and touched and them going now and carrying her her work and her legacy and her mission forward. John Lennon's our guest executive director, Alliance for Middle East Peace on 640 Toronto. Um, do you hope she has a lasting legacy? Are you hoping so much of this difficult time, John, so many of these difficult conversations can lead to a place where where we end up in a better spot 20, 25 years from now? I know it's not happening in the next month or two, but that would be a tremendous honor to somebody like Vivian's legacy and what you're doing at the same time. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, look, what's happening is devastating, but it's we're seeing the abyss. We're in the abyss now. And I think... Mm-hmm. A critical mass of Israelis and Palestinians can look at the horror of this and say, do we want more of this? It's going to steal our children from us, rob us of our humanity and leave both peoples utterly broken. It's no path anywhere good. And Vivian knew that to her core. And I think, you know, the inspiration that she provides to us and to peace builders and hopefully to politicians, including in Canada and around the world, is to really invest in a different path, one that's based upon Israeli-Palestinian partnership and solidarity that pushes back against the sort of dehumanization we've been seeing, not only in the region, but online and around the world, othering Jews or Muslims and setting communities against each other. Vivian stood for the exact opposite. That's right. I, I, we want to see the international community now stand with, with people like Vivian. We want to see them invest in and platform and amplify the work of Israeli and Palestinian communities that work together, because that's... That's the way out of this. That's the way out of this abyss. Almost everybody I know wants what Vivian wanted, John. Thank you so much, and, and thanks for shining a light on, on, on what a beacon she was. I appreciate you coming on this morning. Thank you for telling her story. John Linden, Executive Director, Alliance for Middle East Peace, the Canadian peace activist Vivian Silver, murdered on October 7th in the Hamas attack. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want to bring on uh, realtor Daniel Folk uh, joining us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're going to talk about what you do in your podcast, smart guy that we can learn a lot from here. But when you saw that landmark case a few weeks ago, did you think we'd already start talking about it in Canada? Well, we did have a case that kind of came through at the same time. I guess it was a little bit of a copycat case happening in in, um, the GTA against some real estate boards, brokerages and uh, trade groups, trade organizations here. Um. And and so it, w- it wasn't necessarily surprising um, because it kind of had already been underway. Um, the, the the question is really like, does this verdict, and I know it's in a different country, but mm-hmm. does this verdict sort of set a precedent or, or guide the decision making moving forward of um, of you know the, the um, justice system in Canada um, towards a model that the U.S. could end up. I mean, this really could completely uproot the commission systems in the states, right? When you first saw the verdict, tell our listeners how you thought, well, this is how it affects a realtor working day to day in Kansas City, Missouri now. And and again, there's that ripple effect that comes for us. How does it affect a day to day realtor's job? Yeah, I think from my perspective, it, it just changes the way that I think people, uh, real estate brokers have to be a lot more careful about the way that they convey um, commissions. And, and I think that this was probably um, clear as a result of the the case in the GTA coming out as well, um, you know there are there are allegations that you know there's price fixing or um, anti competitive behavior and and it's not something the real estate industry is um, you know or I guess it's it's 
um, commonly accused of, I suppose, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and so if you have um, sellers uh, or buyers of real estate who are feeling this way um, and and feeling this way so strongly that they're taking it to court, um, I think it just it, it it adds an extra layer of caution to real estate professionals to really um, be considerate of that fiduciary duty that they have, which is a you know a legal obligation to represent the client's best interests and and really explain um, the fee environment thoroughly. You're, you're starting to see a lot of I guess almost like tech ish um, brokers models in, in Canada that are um, popping up that really do start to disrupt this fee environment. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's, it's paving the way for things like that to take place, but also to um, have a more meaningful impact in the real estate market as well. Daniel Fox, our guest on Toronto today, he hosts co-hosts the Canadian real estate investor podcast. It's a phenomenal listen. It tells you an awful lot about the real estate scene. And, and I mentioned that inflation number from the UK uh, before we came in to talk and, um, and people are just looking for this good news. But even, even if rates hold Daniel and don't drop the next few times out, do you still see a lot of choppy waters ahead? A lot of people renewing mortgages and just panicked right now. And, and they don't even know what they're going to have to pay, but they're stressed about it. Yeah, um, CMHC just came out with a report a couple of days ago. I think I want to say maybe six days ago, their residential mortgage industry report, which they release on a quarterly basis. And you can see a, a pretty concerning uptick in delinquencies on, on especially the higher value mortgages. So you're 650 to 850 um, and then $850,000 plus um, are both rising in delinquency rates. Um, and so, and that kind of tracks with some of the data that I've been um I guess, putting together uh, on a primary basis from the Toronto Real Estate Board and beyond, um, which is tracking power of sales. Uh, and power of sales are up about 100% on a year-over-year basis, and they're up about 400% on a two-year basis. So um, definitely some growth in, in the distress that we're seeing in the market. The question is, how quickly can the central banks kind of take the pain away? And I, I think their hands are tied a little bit here. I got 30 seconds. You noted yesterday, borrowers are start two days ago, borrowers are starting to prefer fixed rate mortgages with terms between three and five years. Why does those look so good to borrowers? I think borrowers have kind of capitulated and said, okay, well, maybe the rate, maybe the rates aren't going to come down to where mm-hmm. I thought that they were. Um, you know, that that's really them switching away from the, um, the two to three year terms, which we saw it, it were popular for like the last you know, six to 12 months once variables came out of favor. Um, now yeah. borrowers are kind of accepting that rates might be a bit of a higher for longer environment. Want you to check out the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Daniel Folk is our guest, and we'll talk more about your event uh, end of the month, closer to the end of the month when we got more time. Thanks so much for this insight today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News, Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. Tadil Shamji's MPP for Don Valley East and a uh, emergency uh, surgeon or doctor in his own right. Uh, Adil, thanks very much for coming on the show again. It's always a pleasure to join you. Thank you again. Yeah. What, what, what do you make of this data that you look at? Um, uh, you know, basically from a from a 3000 foot level above, what do you see here? This is a really disturbing continuation of the trend towards privatization in our healthcare that is really ultimately harming patients and delivering poor value for money uh, within our uh, within our province. I mean, just think about it. With the report that came out yesterday, we are learning that private for-profit companies are performing the easiest surgeries on the least complex patients during the most convenient times of day with the least oversight, but they are getting charged two to four times. Uh, they are getting paid two to four times than what is paid in the public system. That is wrong. 
Could I make the case it keeps more surgeries, more diagnostics in the province? You've probably seen the numbers, and I think we've talked about them before. It's in the tens of millions of dollars that flow down to the United States, mostly because of wait times. And we're seeing it in B.C. right now, aren't we, with people going to Washington State to get simple procedures done because B.C. hospitals are flooded. Didn't it keep more money in, in our system at the minimum? You know, uh, there may be an element, a small element of happening uh, of that happening, a small element of medical tourism to get access to these services. But in the vast majority of cases, people are trying to access services within the province, close to their homes. And this movement is making it more and more difficult in order to do that. Did some of the medical workers here see an opportunity as well um, to make a little more money, not necessarily on the side, but if you're working at a for-profit clinic, you know you are, and you know you're actually getting more than maybe your colleague is who's working you know, tirelessly, just as tirelessly at a hospital. You know, we're seeing countless examples of that within healthcare. I mean, just last week I presented a bill to, uh, to regulate temporary nursing agencies where nurses who are, getting, who are being underpaid in the public system are being driven out, going to temporary staffing agencies that charge the public system two to four times what is paid in the public. And the nurses are making two to three times uh, what they would make if they were just hired by the hospitals. And that is playing out in multiple different ways throughout healthcare in the current environment of scarcity, in the current environment in which healthcare workers, whether they're PSWs or social workers or nurses or doctors, are not getting treated properly, are not being compensated properly, are not having their burnout and moral injury and compassion fatigue uh, addressed. They are being driven out. And, uh, and everyone is a human being. When you're faced with Patients who are upset, understandably, by long wait times, Incre- yeah. you know, unbelievably complex patients because they can't get access to primary care. And then there's another option that allows you to see or treat simple patients for a lot more money. It's uh, people are human beings. And and. I can understand why that motivation is there. You saw this all the way, um, and, and you, you've seen, you know, long before COVID-19 came on the scene, you saw long wait times for surgeries, people very concerned in waiting rooms, people not being able to get the, the service they needed for a, a loved one, an elderly relative, and they got to come back. When you looked at them outsourcing these surgeries and their plans last, like I said, February, March, Adil, did you have an open mind about it or were you still skeptical it wasn't going to, you knew what the need was, but you just thought they won't be able to execute it properly? Yeah, I've really tried to be open-minded. And at the end of the day, what matters is getting patients the care that they need. But we need to make sure that it's quality care and that it's good value for money. And in fact, when the proposal had been made to move surgeries out of public hospitals uh, into community-based clinics, I had actually said there is a way in which this could make total and perfect sense, but we need to learn from our lessons of the past. And lessons of the past, for example, with, with cataract surgeries done in the community, have taught us that, that we need to have strong protections, again, upselling and, up, and upcharging, have taught us that for-profit models lead to consistently poorer care. And so I called for all of those things, said I would support community surgeries if those protections were in place. They were never offered. Um, and instead, what we're seeing is, as I said, the, the easiest surgeries, least complex patients getting paid the highest rate, and it's poor yeah. value for money. 
I've talked, we've talked so much about immigration when it comes to where are people going to work? Where will they live? Where will those schools be? Can we handle the infrastructure? But you're the ideal person to ask about health care. If, if we bring 100,000 people a year into our province, boom, they get a health card and they get OHIP coverage. And they should. If they're here, they're like you, they're like me. But I just wonder if you view it and go, oh my goodness, that's just such a tremendous strain on the system. Do you? Well, it is with the with the manner in which this government is accepting those those new immigrants. I mean, realize but that's a federal decision, right? That's a federal decision to set the amount and bring the people in. True. But, uh, you know, 100,000 people, let's say, to take your number coming into our province. A lot of those are doctors. A lot of those are nurses. But this government, the provincial government, is failing to credential those people. So while we have more people coming in, we also have more people coming in who are ready, willing and motivated to help us. And Sylvia Jones refuses to let them do so. I know uh, liberals have a big weekend coming up uh, two weekends from this coming. Um, let's well, I'm out of time now, but let's talk more about it again. I know you got a horse in the race and you care about the party and where it goes. So let's do that at a later date. Thanks so much for the time today. I can't wait. Thanks. Take care. There's a deal. Shamji uh, MPP for Don Valley East. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Now, I didn't know this. The uh, the brass rail is an establishment. Do you want me to explain to you, Sheba, as a female, what it is? I know exactly what it I, is, well, Brady. Well, maybe I don't know. Like I've you, been you, to the rail. OK, you have been to the rail. I've been to the rail. Of course, I've been to I've the rail. I've never even called it the rail. Oh, that's the, that's what it was called. It's iconic. So this is like Sam the Record Man. That's how iconic the brass rail is. The fact that it's being, you know, they want to plow it down, build some condos, I believe what it is. But they now they're, they're vying for heritage recognition for the brass rail. This place has been around forever. 91 years. This is like, that's crazy. To <laughs> it me. was a family friendly food establishment in 1948. They shifted towards adult entertainment in the late 60s. And early 1970s, Young Street was getting a little um, like I don't want to call Young Street seedy, but it started to have that sort of uh, counterculture vibe to it. With well, it, I think with the rail had a lot to do with it. Yeah, probably. I mean, there, so. there are some incredible restaurants right beside and surrounding and across the street from the rail, and then there's the brass rail. And it's got all the pictures of the girls outside, uh, so you can sort of take <laughs> your pick, your flavor of the week, whatever it is. You're like, there's my neighbor. <laughs> there's my daughter. I've been told me I was there for a girlfriend's birthday party, actually. Okay. So we were all there. We went in. Um, Is that we, a common birthday occurrence? No, that, it was not. You're, it you're was not. I think she was turning 25, so it was supposed to be a big deal. So we all went in. We had a night out. It was honestly, it was gross. And I mean by gross, it was <laughs> it, it was um, just a lot. Of That's not a nice thing to say about the ladies, but if you're saying no, it. No, not the I'm not talking about the ladies. I'm not even talking well, about okay. the ladies. It was just uh I mean, like we've well frequented places like this, but the rail, I do believe, is an iconic place just because of the way it even looks outside. You go upstairs, it's just a champagne room. No, I've never been upstairs, but, you know, I know the ins and outs of the place. Did, did you remember that it had closed? Because I needed to be reminded because it, yes. one of the big things when um, the lockdowns came. <laughs> yes. Right away was there were, would we deem them sex workers, said, um, Performers said, well, we got to find some way through deep cleaning or some way to stay open. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. I know that I can't go to a concert. Normal person knows they can't go out for dinner. Sport teams aren't even having you in to go watch their games. So this might be the last particular um, industry. It should be the probably the first. If we're talking hygiene, it's probably the first to close and the last to open.
It did close for And I forgot for that it closed for good. Yes. Yes, it did. No, it reopened though, right? And then they went through some massive uh, um, construction and renovations inside. I don't know. You, we should just go check out the new uh, place. Live show from, like. I don't know. After work today. I like to get out in the community, but that wasn't <laughs> my, uh, you, I'm uncomfortable um, at places like that. I, Why? I just don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I've, never like, lo- I've never loved it. I'm, I'm being fumbling, completely you look honest. uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm blushing. Um, I've never, I remember now I'm going to tell you a story about when you go for your own bachelor party, there were two things that were remarkably uncomfortable. And this was at a a club in Detroit. One, my father-in-law and father came to the baseball game in the bar night before, but they left before that. But my anxiety was building because I didn't know whether they'd leave (laughs) or not. I don't know if they know because I don't plan these things. Someone else is like, let's take you out for a good time. You're getting married in five days, this and that. So I don't know that my dad, who, again, you know, rocked me in, in the cradle as a baby, is coming with me to see uh, to see Janice. Heidi? I, sure. Heidi. Yeah. And and then the second and Bambi. the second part was, no, I've seen that movie, the, <laughs> the actual animated movie. And I don't know. The second thing I don't know, Shiva, is whether or not um, there's a vi- cr- tremendous fear among men because I've heard stories that the concept is get I've been at one of these scenarios of a of a bachelor party I wasn't part of but my friend and I are like oh god where they get the the groom the potential groom on stage and they sit him in a chair yes. and the women take his clothes off yes. like I mean completely and that was not going to happen to me I was I would I would have So your bachelor pa- party sounds like it was a horrible experience oh, yeah. for you. Well, <laughs> I went to work the next morning at 6 a.m. for a 6 a.m. show so that tells you how much how much of a good time I had. I tried to, I was moderate as a, I was having a moderate time. Okay. But yeah, this, so the, the whole concept is now you can imagine for all the boring things that happen at city council, watching city councilors discuss and be on either side as to whether to recognize this as a heritage spot would be fantastic. Oh, that would We'd be get amazing. some audio gold out of this. Gord, you have a file that would, that would last for hours. Yeah. Of a debate. But you have to call it like Let's get Diane Sachs's perspective. <laughs> but Josh Matlow says this. <laughs> but here's Brad Bradford coming over the top rope. Who knows what it, Olivia Chow's weighing in. Who knows what, it, what people Lots would of say. stumbling and searching for words to make yeah. sure you don't paint yourself in a corner. Maybe the premier, who was a city councilor and knows Toronto really well, wants to weigh in as well. Oh, as it, it is what it is. Here. I think as your welcome tour to Toronto, Brassville should be part of it. Just do like a walkthrough. On a Saturday night at 10 p.m. That's just, it is what it is. So this is Toronto's Preservation Board, and they're recommending council protect the building houses because it's a significant moment in the city's architectural past. It, it, look, it, it, joking aside, I it, there are a lot of buildings in Toronto that people are really aggressively trying to protect and say, that's part of our heritage. It's don't, iconic, don't many of these buildings. Don't knock it down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I would assume on Young Street as well, up and down. I mean, people were, were adamant about even the Sam the Record Man sign or over on Spadina with Honest Eds. I mean, we talked about those brands the other day when we were talking about um, Bad Boy. But yeah. Um, it, so it, in your opinion, is Brassville a heritage building? I think so. Can preserve it? I think so. Okay. Take all those photos off of the various, you know, um, ladies. The women, Why? Yeah, take the sign down that says "totally nude European style female dancers." Why? No, there's everything there. Why now? No, I that can't sign there be a, why can't so, there be North American style? No, but here's the thing: it's so diverse and multicultural now. Even the pictures outside, <laughs> it's amazing. They're promoting like their their DEI must be phenomenal. <laughs> 
their DEI officer. I want officer. that job. After this, I'm going to become the DEI rep. For I Brass think you Rail. could actually moon, moonlight as both. And I mean the DEI part. <laughs> I think you could. Like, it would make for a great documentary. Radio producer by morning. Uh, Brass Rail DEI uh, head of coordination. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Female coordinator. Whatever, right.